it's Loom Group's Andrea Lay, Backview's Melissa Burdick, the wizard of Woodland Hills Shree, and I'm PVSB from Flywheel, a division of Omnicom, and I'm coming to you today from the Catskills. Be playing Heckinger's Tuesdays and Thursdays. Before we get to the CPG Guys episode you've downloaded, it's the week of May 6th, and it's time for the Fresh Four, for curated news stories from the past week. We find them dependably intriguing. We hope you do too. We're brought to you through our partnership with Retail Wit, your one-stop shop for retail industry intelligence news, retailwit.com. It's retail right now. Over to you, Shree. In case you're wondering what this background is, I'm at, I'm at my father-in-law's house all the way in Chennai, India for the next couple of weeks. So what's the message of the week? Kroger Precision Marketing strikes a partnership with none other than Yahoo DSP. So Yahoo DSP advertisers now have access to KPM's audiences for both reach and measurement. Partnership marks KPM's second DSP partnership since last fall and ushers in a new focus on commerce media for Yahoo advertising in particular. Collaborations like this one will define the next phase of growth in retail media as retailers recognize the limitations of monetization on their own digital properties and seek incremental growth by expanding offsite. This is said by Sara Marzano, principal analyst at eMarketer. For advertisers, the delayed but still impending deprecation of third-party cookies, which is now on its way, continues to underpin every decision regarding digital advertising dollars. So solutions that safeguard their investments against that hold increasing appeal. Over to you, Andrea. Hello, Fresh 4 listeners. Walmart adds a new grocery line to its private brand's portfolio. Walmart has announced a new private label grocery brand called Better Goods. The line includes 300 items spanning categories such as frozen, dairy, snacks, beverages, pasta, soups, coffee, and chocolate. With most items priced under $5, Better Goods focuses on three key components, culinary experiences, plant-based, and made without. The retailer said Better Goods marks not only its largest private food brand launch in two decades, but also its fastest grocery brand brought to market. Over to you, Melissa. Thanks, Andrea. Uh, so, Savemark companies roll out in-store retail media networks. It's not enough that we have online. Now we're moving to in-store retail media networks. The Savemark companies plans to roll out in-store connect, an in-store retail media network powered by Quad Graphics Inc. To start, 16 of the grocery company stores will have digital screens, kiosks, end caps, shelf screens, and vertical banners throughout, allowing CPG partners to showcase promotions, product information, and recommendations to shoppers. The program will eventually roll out to all the Savemark companies, approximately 200 stores. This is Savemark's latest retail media effort, coming almost a year after a launch of its own retail media network. Over to you, Peter. Thanks, Melissa. Rite Aid expands Uber Eats' partnership for alcohol delivery in eight states. Nearly 1,000 Rite Aid stores will now offer alcohol delivery via retailers' expanded partnership with Uber Eats. Customers of legal drinking aid can get delivery from select stores in California, Idaho, Michigan, New York, Ohio, Oregon, Virginia, and Washington. Quote, our collaboration and trusted partnership with Uber Eats underscores our commitment to meet the evolving needs of our customers and providing a seamless digital shopping experience complements their busy lives, unquote, said Jeannie Walden, Senior Vice President and Chief Marketing Officer at Rite Aid, the U.S.'s third largest pharmacy retailer. That's it for the Fresh Four. Now on to the CPG Guys episode that you've downloaded. Welcome to another episode of the CPG Guys podcast. Our co-hosts, Sri Rajagopalan and Peter V.S. Bond, 
explore how brands and retailers engage with consumers online, in-store, and everywhere in between. And now, here are Shri and Peter. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CPG Guys podcast. I am one of the aforementioned CPG Guys. My name is Peter V. S. Bond. I'm also the Vice President of Strategy for Power Reviews, a product ratings and reviews software company. Now, this is usually where I introduce my co-host, Shri, but he is immersed in the launching of his new D2C natural product supplement brand, Zen Fuel. He is on set doing photo shoots, and he can't be with us today. So I am flying solo, but the good news is that I have got a great guest today. He's someone that I have known for almost 25 years. Hard to believe it's been that long. <laughs> we were four years old. My guest today is the principal of a consultancy called Coogan Partners. It's named after him. Uh, he has a great background, worked at what was a little bit of wreck at Ben Kieser. It's a little bit of... Correct. Of Back, uh, when, back when it was wreck well. and Coleman. Yes, wreck and And we Coleman. had a joke, uh, buy them and wreck them, wreck them and hold them. Uh, we used to buy a lot of brands over the years. and uh, Yes. And then, of course, right. before that, uh, Perrier Group, which is now part of Nestle Waters. Uh, we met at IRI. He then went on to work at Accenture for a little bit of time. And more recently, over the last decade or so, he's really established a powerful consultancy called Coogan Partners, which, among other things, brings together uh, like-positioned roles from people working at non-competing companies to help them talk and discuss issues that are relevant to them. So I'm going I'm to let him get into that in a second, but please join me in welcoming Ken Coogan. Ken, how are you doing? Great. I'm doing well, Peter. Thanks for having me. Well, it's good to have you here. And and the reason I invited Ken is not only because I wanted to remind him of the fact that the Yankees have already been eliminated from the playoffs this year, <laughs> since I can't have Shri here to take the wrath. But uh, more importantly, Ken is uh, a, one of the most thoughtful and innovative people I know. And he's conducted some market research very recently, but I know our audience is going to find very interesting, which really centers around shopper marketing in a in a COVID and post-COVID environment. So looking to really get into that today with you, if that's okay, Ken. Yeah. Wonderful. Can you tell us a little bit more basically about what your business is before we kind of get into that? Yeah, sure. So uh, we've been running uh, share groups now for 20 years. We're an alternative to the public conference industry. I think public conferences are great, but people feel there's a lot of selling going on at these conferences, you know, as an example, if Pepsi presents, what do they really want to say if Coke is in the audience? And I think retailers prefer these kinds of forums too, because we're, we're typically small. We've got about 20 attendees, all from non-competing brands, and we're also experiential. So, you know, if we're talking about shopper marketing, you know, what better than to get into, you know, a new Walmart, you know, concept store, you know, go to uh, innovation centers like Microsoft Store of the Future, I feel like when you can create an experience like that, the learning is more effective than sitting in a conference room in a hotel ballroom. Of course, uh, in 2020, all of our meetings have been uh, gone to the Zoom world, right? Um, and those have been surprisingly effective as well. So yeah, I've been doing this uh, 20 years. I know I tend to fly a little below the radar screen because of the non-compete, because you know we've we've got limits in terms of the number of brands that can participate. But I work with, uh, I think, about 70 different entities in consumer goods, um, including brands that you might not think of as, you know, 
quote unquote CPGs. So, you know, your Nikes, your Hasbros, uh, your PlayStations. And uh, from a retail perspective, um, we pretty much worked with everybody except Publix. Publix, if you're listening, I'd love to uh, do an event with you guys. But uh, Amazon, Walmart, Target, Walgreens, uh, even sometimes uh, retailers like Best Buy, which was uh, has, is really known for uh, doing some pioneering omni-channel, omni-commerce work, you know, back in the uh, OOs, right? So, yeah, so that's a little bit about me. Ken, I'll just say we're very much about shameless promotions on this podcast, so you're in good company. <laughs> I can say from a presenter perspective, I've been to two physical and th- one virtual Coogan Partner Share Group, and I've found them to be quite conversational, quite open and innovative. Uh, a lot gets discussed. Everybody kicks the tires and you come away learning a lot more. So I'm a big fan of Ken. That's why I had him here. So sh- so Ken, let's get right into the heart of it. You, you've done some, some mm-hmm. good research. Before we talk about the shopper marketing in COVID survey, I- I'd love to hear from you just anecdotally. What are some of the CPG related transformations that are really getting your attention during this pandemic. Yeah, sure. So, you know, it's interesting. So the two, the two big issues that everybody is aware of and you're hearing a lot about in the industry is, you know, the first is just the massive growth across all consumer goods categories. And it's interesting because brands are being impacted in ways that are obvious and, and less foreseen. So an obvious example would be you know, food brands are are doing very well because people are eating out less. They're making more meals at home. And to the extent that, you know, brands have uh, retail versus food service businesses, they're doing well. Obviously, everyone knows that anyone involved in, you know, OTC, healthcare or cleaning supplies like, you know, Reckitt or Clorox, they're doing very well. But then there's the unexpected, you know, category. So one example would be Crayola. You know, kids are are doing homeschooling. They're looking to be entertained at home. So there's, you know, a big demand on that. Um, batteries, right? You know, normally you associate batteries with hurricanes, but all of these, uh, you know, touchless uh, uh, hand sanitizer machines need batteries. So um, it's very interesting because, you know, very few categories are sort of flat right now. Like you're either, you know, growing or declining. Like one category that is declining is beauty because people aren't going to work. So that's that's the first major issue. And then the the second one that everyone is clearly recognizing is the growth of e-commerce. Uh, you're seeing figures of roughly, you know, sustained growth of uh, about two and a half times uh, post versus pre-COVID. And uh, that's the other, you know, sort of obvious one. But then there's there's other stories that are sort of embedded below. So, you know, there's been a big investment in retail media because traditional shopper marketing media simply isn't available, right? You can't, you can't buy displays. You can't, you know, get activity in the store the way you used to because stores are focused on on health and keeping in stock position. Um, also, big trend towards personalization and digital. And so, those were really the kinds of issues we were seeking to explore in the survey to go beyond kind of the, you know, the main headlines, if you will. That's great, Ken. You know, retail media is right up our alley. We've had quite a number of guests from retailers and their media groups, Instacart, Drizzly. Walmart Media Group, Sam's Club, we've got some more coming up. And mm-hmm. absolutely, there are very different rules for the digital shelf than the physical shelf. And as brands scramble to try and take control of the digital shelf and win there, they're they're learning that they need a lot of different 
arrows in the quiver than they would normally mm-hmm. use for an in-store. You can't do a digital display. Uh, you can't do right. brand blocking on the digital shelf, at least not in not in search results. So yeah, it's absolutely there. So Ken, you created a shopper marketing in, in COVID survey. Before we get into the findings, because I know we have a lot of data geeks on this podcast, can you give us an <laughs> idea of one, why did you feel the survey? I think it, there are some obvious answers to that, but the details behind who you reached out to to help get the answers for the survey. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, as, as I said previously, I wanted to kind of get behind the headlines and understand in, you know, frankly, a lot more detail what was happening in the landscape. You know, everyone has these anecdotes about what's happening in their category, Um but it's sometimes very helpful to take a step back and say, you know, this is happening to me. This is happening to you. Like, how am I comparing to other brands in the industry? And um, our study was only for uh, senior shopper marketers on the brand side. Mm-hmm. So um, it was a pr- pretty selective group. We got uh, 26 uh, brands to uh, participate. And um, we've got open-ended questions to get to some of the qualitative insights, but we also have a lot of quant as well. And, um, you know, part of getting any study right, I think, is, is the questionnaire design. Like the group, our shopper group actually helped me design this survey to make okay. sure that we captured, you know, all the, all the potential aspects of this that we could explore. And then the last thing I'd say is, you know, I run uh, five different groups. So in addition to shopper, I run a group, you know, in category management, innovation, Uh, market research and digital. And all of my functions are clearly impacted by COVID. But I would say of all the functions, shoppers is clearly impacted uh, pretty heavily because, you know, the tactics that were previously available in pre-COVID went away. And so they had to kind of pivot and figure out what to what to do with the those resources. Brilliant. Well, Ken, you know, I love to skip to the last chapter. So let's let's end. (laughs) What are what what are the conclusions, the big conclusions I should draw from the research? And then we'll double click down on to some uh, on to each of those. Yeah, so it's interesting. I think that there are there's a there's a couple of things happening in the industry right now. Um, obviously, the vast majority of brands are growing very rapidly. And so you have kind of a choice to senior management. Do you take those profits and invest in marketing in the long term, or do you bank those profits, right? And um, there's been some debate in the community. Uh, You may have seen that um, the CEO of Coke uh, came out in April uh, saying that they were going to pull advertising because they felt that, um, you know, for financial reasons, because of their food service business, but also there was a hypothesis that people weren't going to pay attention to ads, that they were preoccupied with COVID and they wouldn't be receptive to advertising right now. In fact, Byron Sharp, you know, out of Australia is advocating that. But I've seen several studies since COVID started that suggest it's not true at all, that people are still reacting to advertising the same way they have in the past. Um, What they don't like that's interesting is they don't like, you know, ads that kind of pander to COVID that aren't really offering anything about, you know, practical information to help them. So simply, you know, taking out an ad and saying, we care about you, we care about your safety. Those kinds of ads are not cutting through. Now, if you look at the other hand, you look at a company like Clorox, I mean, their CEO has said, you know, they plan to invest, right? They're getting, bringing new shoppers into the, uh, into the fold, uh, particularly younger households. And they want to make sure they're talking to those folks because they're coming into the category for the first time. They're looking for help with cleaning 
or McCormick, where you know folks are looking for help, uh, uh, you know, preparing meals. So I think the the key takeaway for me is, you know, strike while the light iron is hot, so to speak. Right, invest in in shoppers, and also emerge, you know, invest in the new tactics, whether it be ratings and reviews, e-commerce, you know, search, which isn't a particularly new tactic, but is very effective in an e-commerce uh, context, um, and invest in those relationships with those shoppers. You know, try to gather first-party data so that when, uh, when COVID goes away, you'll have, um, you know, those loyal relationships going forward. There's a misperception on the part of too many old-school brands that advertising is for physical and SEM SEO is for digital. And I think they often forget how many, how often people are sitting there in front of their television watching an ad and open up their tablet or their mobile phone and start searching and make a purchase. There's there's this concept of digitally influenced that people really can't aren't measuring effectively right now. And as a result mm-hmm. of that, they are just simply discounting its contribution. I think that's short-sighted. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, it's funny, I'm not a concept, I'm not a fan of this term path to purchase, because I think it describes something that's very linear. I think the purchase decision influence uh, process, the better analogy I've heard is like a pond with ripples, right? There's all kinds of ways. And it's humbling. It's humbling to try to figure out what those points are and when at those points, but you have to, you don't have a choice. So, you know, we were with a very large uh, Cincinnati-based retailer recently, and they talk about, you know, load to cart. Right. Yep. You know, once you load that first cart for e-commerce, it's convenient. People tend to do that over again. And so if you're not in that first cart uh, purchase, you know, that becomes a, a big problem down the line. And so, you know, as people are doing more you know, digital shopping, you know, brands need to uh, to play where the uh, where the action is. I'll also mention I recently spoke with someone we both know who is in category management for a large alcohol manufacturer. And most of their volume pre-pandemic was on-premise. They were not as big in the home business. When I talked to him early in the process, he said to me, we've zeroed out our advertising budget. And a couple of months later, and they did so because they were primarily on-premise and that's, they thought that was the right way to go. I think they made a, a 180 when they started to realize that was probably not the right way to engage their customers, that their customers still like their brands, were still consuming. Right. And this was an opportunity to still talk to them. And even though they weren't consuming on-premise, it was an opportunity to get them to, to, to purchase off-premise. I work with a, a major global alcohol brand that's investing in their D2C yep. you know, websites. Uh, you know, the, the point of the D2C, you know, that the kind of knee jerk is well, they don't, how much are they actually going to sell on a D to C website? But the reality is it's a learning environment and you can take those learnings from D to C sites and apply them elsewhere. And so I'm seeing probably at least half the brands I work with have a dedicated D to C site now. And it's not necessarily about the volume per se, but about the, the learning that they can get about around the whole shopper decision process. Yeah, the 1P data is invaluable. In fact, we recently had Wendy Liebman on our podcast, and she let us know mm-hmm. that increasingly retailers are telling brands, if you want us to list your innovation, you better bring to us serious 1P data to back up why we should carry that item. If you don't have that, 
then guess what? We're not going to, we're not going to fully support your innovation in our channel. And that's something mm-hmm. brands have to understand that when you think about profitability from a D2C perspective, it's a very, very different model than manufacturers who are accustomed to a warehouse model with a very high margin. You're responsible for a lot more in the equation in terms of keeping the I mean, when you do warehouse, you're not responsible for keeping the lights on in the retail store, making the refrigerators work. Comparably speaking, in D2C, you have to start changing your perspective on what is considered to be profitable. And to your point, getting that one key data to help drive your omni-channel strategy is somewhere you got to lean in from a CapEx perspective and, and understand the short term. That may not be terribly conducive to the full profit picture, but long run, it will be valuable. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you know, Peter, you've been in loyalty marketing a long time, and I was uh, in loyalty marketing with IRI. I remember calling on major retailers back in uh, the year 1999 and saying, hey, you know, you can do stuff with this card. You can actually make offers based on what people have purchased, which at the time, sad to say, was actually a novel idea, right? Because in those days, it was all about card usage, right? If, If people were using my card, Right. That meant I was being successful. And it was really, you know, with Don Humby, you know, who I, I knew Don Humby when I you know, was over in the UK. So I was familiar with their model when they first came here in 2005 with with Kroger. And it's still a it's still a big issue for CPG brands. We still, you know, because of the nature of, of what we do for a living selling through retailers, we're never going to have the robust, you know, first party data of, of an airline or financial yeah. services company or. Uh, Peloton or anything else that sells direct. Yeah, but just getting a modicum of that data is so incredibly valuable to people who are professionals in th- in the insights area. So I'm with you on that. So so Ken, obviously, the survey told us a lot about what brands were facing. What do you? What does it tell you that they have been doing? You kind of gave us one example with your alcohol client building need to see, but what are some of the other things that they are doing to win in these turbulent times to, to adjust to yeah, this so, reality? Yeah. So crazy times, right? So right. Um, a lot of, a lot of brands are still experiencing out of stocks, right? Even what are we seven months into this pandemic? And, and so they're not the price promoting. Merchant. I went to the mass merchant up the street from me last Saturday at eight o'clock in the morning I walked up to the dairy section. I might as well have been on the Gulf Coast 24 hours before a tornado. <laughs> there was no inventory. There are some serious right. supply chain problems that still exist. I mean, I'll give I'll give Amazon this. Even as recently as 4 weeks ago, their prime delivery window was really 5 to 7 business days. It is it is improved now. And I and I live I live less than 10 miles from a fulfillment center. So there are supply chain issues all over the place. So I'm with you on that. Yeah. So I think sometimes we forget, you know, we are in the food business. You know, these products come from nature. So I I work with a well-known canned fruit and vegetable company. And, you know, you can't just make the peaches grow, you know, faster. Right. But they're, you know, they're not able to price promote because there's not you know, enough inventory on shelf. And now what they're doing is they're, they're using pull strategies through recipes to get people to consume the products that are in their uh, pantries. So 
a number of brands I work with have those, I guess you'd call them pantry drawdown yeah. uh, strategies, right? As well as elimination of price reduction. If, if you look at shopper marketing, if you look at sort of the, you know, the toolbox, if you will, pre versus post COVID, I would say it's probably 70, 75% different from what it had been prior to uh, March. Wow. That's, uh, that's, that's quite incredible. Yeah. I think that this concept of doing pantry drawdown is challenging. It's not a science yet. It's probably more of an art, but whatever they can do from a recipe promotion perspective or anything else to get people to start running through their existing inventory so that they want to buy. I know that I was on a, I was a crazy man on a mission the first week of March trying to get as much inventory <laughs> stacked up in my house. Uh, one of my good friends bought a, bought a coffin freezer and ordered uh, a couple sides of beef out to, out to his house on Long Island. So it was a little crazy. And now you got to draw down because the reality is that we're still, we still consume the same amount. The question is, right. are we consuming it at home or at work? And at some point that all just kind of washes out. So the question will be, for how long will uh, these these food manufacturers reap the benefits of this growth and also obviously cycling into the next year their objectives? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I'm, and I'm glad you brought up next year because uh, that is interesting. Like in, in talking with my clients, um, even the categories that you think would be like classic pantry load, like you know canned beans or pasta, they're still experiencing sustained you know, growth uh, versus year ago. Part of that is still all these meal occasions that are going from restaurants to home. But there's also been a bit of a debate on what's going to happen with e-commerce next year, right? Some uh, consultancies and brands are actually forecasting a slight decline in e-commerce because not everybody shopping on e-commerce today wants to stay on the platform. Some people enjoy shopping in grocery stores and may return. In fact, um, one of the stats I saw on growth of e-commerce is you know, who is driving this growth, right? And the, the growth in e-commerce, it's coming obviously from all demographics, but it's particularly coming from demographics that we don't traditionally associate with e-commerce. So seniors, boomers, smaller households, those are the folks that are driving e-commerce. You know, they aren't necessarily as convenience driven if they're empty nesters, right? And so there is an open question. E-commerce will continue to grow on, in the long run. There's absolutely no doubt about that, but it's not a given that e-commerce will continue to grow again in 2021. There might be a slight uh, correction and then a return to growth in 2022. You know, it's a shame that that the e-commerce revolution has left behind too many important consumer segments. And what I mean by that is in particular, the unbanked community has not been well mm-hmm. served by the e-commerce revolution because without the payment mechanism, their ability to participate has been challenged. That's why I was so excited this week to see an announcement by Instacart that they were partnering with Aldi to test out the use of SNAP payment mechanisms for home delivery in, I think, about 30 locations in Georgia. Kudos Mm. to people at Instacart for understanding that in an era where, why are people engaging in e-commerce? because they're concerned with safety. And if we leave people behind, particularly demographics that are ultimately going to 
or have been displaying higher infection rates of COVID. Now we, now we need to start solving so that everybody has an opportunity to avail themselves of the same services that help protect their lives. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I think, um, I don't think there's any doubt that Instacart has been a big winner these past few months. You know, they have the business model. I mean, they have a flex model where if you have a, you know, a, a overnight increase in demand for, for delivery, you know, like we experienced in March, you know, they have a flexible workforce that can, that can meet that demand. And that's, that's why Instacart is, uh, has done so well these past few months. And I, I think, you know, folks tend to underrate Instacart. They're not as uh, technologically sophisticated. They're not delivering anything via drones, last I checked, right? Um, but there's a simplicity to their business model that uh, makes them a, a formidable um, uh, entry and a, and a great, you know, service for, for shoppers. Yeah, they certainly have a compelling model from a retail perspective that operates on very thin margins and the ability mm-hmm. to get yourself very quickly into e-commerce without any CapEx investment or, or fairly, fairly nominal CapEx investment is quite appealing to retailers that are looking at the big guys and wondering, how do I play in this world? So there's a lot of interesting stuff. So back to the health issue in your survey. Um, I think about when I walk through my local club store, one of the biggest changes that I've seen is, um, is the inability of brands to drive trial through, through sampling, particularly on food products because of the safety concern. What are you learning from that, Ken? Yeah. So sampling is, is, and will remain a, a tough issue, right? I mean, in-store sampling stores are great places to sample, right? You know, people are coming through, you can control the quality of you know how the food is served. It's it's served at the right temperature. You have a nice friendly cook who's doing it. Um, I spend my winters in uh, in Florida, and I'm a Publix shopper, and I can tell you that sample uh, end cap. You know you have to you have to fight people <laughs> to get those samples. And so um, there's no question that it's you know like other other things we do, it's more difficult in the COVID era, but I think, you know, brands have found ways around it. You know, the biggest thing obviously is to ship samples to the homes, um, but do it in a smart way. So do it via, you know, retailer loyalty program where they've got, you know, data uh, on who the right prospect might be for that sampling. Others are doing it through um, uh, loyalty or uh, social media, excuse me, um, you know, finding, uh, folks on social media who can, who can spread the word influencers. So there's a lot of creative things happening around sampling. It's just a little too early to say, right. We're only seven months into COVID. So I suspect two or three months from now, some brands might be coming back and reporting back on, you know, how did they uh, achieve this? And, and on a related uh, note, you know, the same issue with new items, right. Um, It's a little difficult to launch new items right now, because again, retailers are just focused on, you know, keeping up and, you know, with, with, you know, winter returning here in the, the Northern U S uh, that's only going to get you know worse. And so there, there just isn't as much opportunity to slot in new items. Yeah. The challenge is obviously that brands think of innovation as the lifeblood of growth. They, their goal is to retain the clients they have and expand through, through innovation where, you know, I work at power Views, where we spend an enormous amount of our time with our clients is we have a, a community of about a million everyday influencers who in exchange for a product sample will write 
a very authentic and meaningful review, not a positive review, mm. just simply they're instructed to write an authentic review. And why that's important is because obviously on the digital shelf in particular, where you can't physically pick up the product, getting getting honest feedback from people who've tried it can be uh, the data we see has a direct correlation to conversion rates. Yeah. So when you've got innovation, if you can get your product into the hands of people before you go to market and those ratings and reviews appear on the digital shelf the minute the product does, you're, the likelihood of your innovative success is going to be substantially higher. We're both data geeks. We love insights, Ken. What are the sources <laughs> of insights that brands are turning to right now to drive their decision during this pandemic era? Interesting question, Peter. So, so let me try to unpack this, right? Overall spending on insights is down a lot. I've heard figures as high as 40%. Some of it is coming from other industries that are doing very poorly and don't have funds for market research, but a lot of it is simply the inability to pivot, you know, focus groups, uh, ethnography, central location testing, like a lot of the tools that researchers have had and relied on are not available during the COVID era. Mm -hmm. And so brands are reinvesting those dollars in things like, you know, mobile-based surveys, virtual focus groups, but the, the new channels, if you will, the new ways of getting insights are not, um, they're not capturing that, you know, net loss, right, of uh, research dollar uh, spending. And then there are still um, some big questions up for debate, like probably the biggest one for me personally, and if any, any listener out, out there uh, can produce some data, is what happens when items aren't available in stock, right? And maybe it's not an answerable question, but I'm sure we've all heard anecdotes about, you know, for example, I've heard from one of my spirits clients that people are buying high-end spirits because they're not going to bars, right? They're not spending, you know, $15 on a cocktail. And so they, they feel they can go to, you know, Total Wine and Spirits or whatever and upgrade their drink, right? And then there's another line of thought that with so many folks unemployed that, you know, value items are selling well. But is it really just all boats lifting with the tide, right? Like, can we actually tease this data out? It's really hard to say. With a couple of exceptions, I think we're somewhat flying blind in store, right? Like I haven't seen a lot of research about, for example, you know, it would have been very helpful for retailers to understand mass policy, right? Like, as you know, early on during COVID, a lot of retailers just deferred to the local government. I think Costco is the first one, right, that said, regardless of local policy, we're going to have masks. Well, you know, I personally would prefer to shop in a store where people have to wear masks, Right. But I haven't seen any studies about, you know, is that a pro for a retailer? Like if a retailer goes out ahead of the government policy and says, we're going to have a mass policy, will that draw more shoppers, right, um, to the store? So there's there's a lot out there that's still not necessarily addressed. But on a positive note, on the digital side of things, there's some great research coming out right now because that's that's stuff we can measure more easily. Yeah. For me, the, the fascination is the traditional market tracking solutions that are offered by the IRIs and Nielsen's of the world. Despite their better efforts to try and track purchasing through e-com, it's still challenging with platforms and marketplaces like Instacart because sure. it's e-commerce, yes, but the actual money is transferring 
to the retailer at the store level, and it's blended in with all of the physical transactions. So the ability to tease that out and report back, again, still a bit of an art. So trying to trying to to your point unpack that is a is a little bit challenging. So what do you think are some of the big issues and opportunities that brands are going to face going forward in the next year or two? Yeah, so I think the biggest opportunity is to, you know, cultivate those relationships. You know, we know your business is up, but what are you doing to prepare for the post-COVID future, right? And a lot of that has to do with making people feel better about their purchases and trying to keep those habits ingrained. So let's just take an example, you know, eating. You know me, Peter, I love eating out. My wife worked for Gourmet Magazine. I love going to restaurants as much as anybody. You know, I've tried to you know, support our restaurants by getting takeout. But on, and in general, in aggregate, eating out is generally less healthy than eating in, right? That's just a fact. And so folks are making more meals at home. You know, maybe they're spending more time together as a family. Like this, to me, this is a positive behavior that should be, you know, encouraged. So don't revert all the way back to uh, eating out. Hygiene and sanitation, you know. I'm old enough to remember, you know, early in my career, the macho man was the, was the guy who came to work sick, right? That was behavior to be, you know, applauded, Ambulate, right? And it, yeah. it's not behavior to be <laughs> applauded, it's behavior to be frowned upon. And, you know, I've spent some time in, uh, in Asia and, you know, really interesting insight on Japan, you know, as, as a Westerner, when I first saw all the folks in masks on the subway, and these were just normal times, you know, I thought, oh, you know, they're trying to prevent themselves from getting sick, right? That's the kind of the Western reaction, right? And what I learned as I dug a little further into the culture is they're wearing masks because they don't want you to get sick, right? So in Japan, if you have a cold or a flu or some, some you know, minor thing, it's considered courteous to wear a mask on the subway. And so nobody, you know, thinks you look weird or anything like that. And so I think... Um, from a Western U.S. perspective, I think you're going to see, you know, transmission of other diseases uh, and, and flu and, and, you know, related kinds of, um, you know, health problems, if you will, will, will also go down post-COVID because people will just be more careful. And so I think all, all the brands have an opportunity now. You've got, you've got shoppers' attention. You've got them using your product. Make them feel good about their choice. Get their first-party data keep the communication going. And, um, you know, that, that's really the biggest opportunity. Yeah, that's pretty great, Ken. I know you and I would love to go down a rabbit hole and discuss the issues around wearing face masks and whether any <laughs> future global threats to our societal existence are going to be politicized for generations to come. That That's unfortunate, and we're not going to mm-hmm. do it. But in any event, <laughs> one last question, Ken, in your consulting work with your share groups, you bring together, as I said, people with similar roles, they don't compete, that tends to foster open discussion. So can you share with us some of the areas that, because I know you're planning, you're always planning for the next session. What are some of the mm-hmm. topics that you are laser focused on that you think are a direct result of the pandemic. So it's interesting, you know, the five groups that I run are all, you know, key consumer demand functions that everybody in the industry would recognize. And there are certain themes that are unique to the functions and themes that work across. So, 
Uh, entering COVID, pre-COVID, e-commerce was a huge theme, right? Like e-commerce was, you know, 100% of everyone's growth. It was, you know, growing pretty reliably at, you know, 25% per year. And so, you know, naturally a lot of brands are investing in that. And e-commerce is touching all the functions, right? As you said earlier in the call, uh, Peter, you know, innovators need to be thinking about e-commerce, right? Some folks are launching uh, items on e-commerce for the first time to see how they, they try out before going brick and mortar. So there's um, there's no question that that was happening, right? And so COVID has only accelerated it. Um, and then there's two other issues that were, um, one became very unfashionable and, and the other is sort of ongoing. Um, uh, to your um, audience, if you've never read uh, How Brands Grow by Byron Sharp, I would highly recommend it. Um, it's a great primer for uh, marketing uh, mass brands, uh, but the controversial aspect of, the, of their hypothesis is that you know, loyalty marketing is kind of a waste of time, that you wanna reach the widest audiences that you can. Um, all of this is, is, you know, partially true. You know, I, I buy into it at certain levels, but, uh, the book was written in 2010, right. When, um, uh, the marketplace was not as digitized as it is today. There wasn't as much first party data. And so there's no doubt that there's a movement in our industry towards uh, personalization, right? We want to personalize as much as we can. And there are, you know, enablers from a technology standpoint, uh, that are making it easier to personalize. But the argument is how efficient is that, right? Is How does that compare to, you know, traditional TV advertising? And I, so I think the solution is somewhere in the middle, Peter. I think, you know, you still have to be conscious of, you know, getting a good CPM, a good return on your investment. And so, you know, now you have this notion of, you know, called mass personalization, where you're not necessarily speaking to people at an individual level, but you're working cohorts. So that's, that's a debate that I think will continue to go forth for our industry. And the last thing I'd say that was, you know, became very unfashionable very quickly. I mean, look, there's no doubt, you know, we've all read about the experience economy, right? You know, that people want experiences more than things. And that, that's that been going on for a long time now, really, with the, the advent of uh, millennials who are, uh, frankly, less status conscious than uh, previous uh, generations. You know, they experience they want experiences ahead of things. And so that was all in place. And clearly 2020 is a terrible year <laughs> for the experience economy. No one's traveling, no one's going to Coachella, et cetera, et cetera. But if you think about it from a CPG standpoint, we've been working on, you know, thinking about the context of our products, the experience. We're doing it in our own offices, right? People are trying to make the office more interesting, you know, uh, you know, more effective for people to work. And so that all became super unfashionable this year. And you may have read, uh, uh, disappointingly, REI, the outdoor retailer, closed and sold their headquarters before they even opened it, right? They spent all yeah. this money on this beautiful headquarters and closed it. So that's something that was an ongoing trend in our industry that people were thinking about, you know, you know, how to create a great office environment, moving into cities. If you think about the Chicago community, all the all the brands that moved to downtown Chicago, right? Like Tyson and SCJ. And so these are dark hours for people like me who uh, kind of champion that, right? And believe in that. But I, I promise you come 2021, when you know things begin to return to normal, that, that trend will definitely come back. You know, Ken, it's interesting you mentioned that because I can say 
from my experience, obviously, at PowerViews, what I saw happen very dramatically is what I did. In the middle of the pandemic, I decided to take my family and move closer to closer to where our extended family is so we could avail ourselves of that community in this challenge. We relocated to Connecticut from Chicago. We sold our place. I'm not the exception at my company. Yesterday, one of my colleagues told me he moved to Austin. I had one move to, to Charleston, uh, Hawaii, Mexico. And so the question will become, even if a company wants to go back and create that environment, the cat's out of the bag. I don't know how successful they're going to be <laughs> at attracting people to that mechanism and that environment when they are all of a sudden getting accustomed to what you've been doing for 20 years, which is you've been working out, yeah. of, out of your home. So that's a bit of a challenge. Let me remind our audience that for all of our content, we have podcasts available on 15 platforms. We have a YouTube channel. We have a list of our favorite podcasts that we listen to. Just go to cpgguys.com and you'll find all that terrific content. And if you're walking around the house and you want to entertain yourself and educate at the same time, you got a virtual assistant, just ask her to play the CPG Guys podcast. Notice how I didn't mention her by name because I would have set off about 30 people uh, listening to the show <laughs> at the same time. So I didn't do that. Ken, thank you so much. Can you tell thank you, Peter where they can learn more about the research report that you published and more importantly about how they can learn more about Coogan Partners? Great question. Would it be possible, Peter, to uh, put a copy of the study on your site with a download link? Yeah, we'd be happy to do that. So if you go to cpgguys.com, we will put a link to the survey. And that is not a problem at all, Ken. And, and if they want to find you to talk about, learn more about your share groups and about what you mm -hmm. do, how would they reach out to you? Uh, my email address will be in the document. I'll include that. So, what I'll uh, also do is I'll put a link to your email address in the speaker notes of the podcast. So if you go to your podcast platform and read the actual text description, there'll be some hyperlinks there to, to Ken's contact information. Okay. So Ken, thanks Great. again. Sounds good, Peter. Us. I'm sorry that Shree couldn't be here. I was hoping to disappoint two fans <laughs> of another disappointing season while mine continues on. But I will have to save that for, for yet another time. Ken, thanks a lot. And to our audience, thanks for joining us. We look forward to you having us in your house, your phone, your computer again on the next episode of the CPG Guys podcast. Take care. Goodbye. Content in this podcast episode is provided for general informational purposes only. By listening to our episode, you understand that no information contained in this episode should be construed as advice from CPG Guys LLC or the individual author, hosts, or guests, nor is it intended to be a substitute for research on any subject matter. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by CPG Guys LLC. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. The views expressed by CPG Guys LLC do not represent the views of their employers 
or the entity they represent. CPT Guys LLC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, or inability to use this podcast or the information we present in this podcast.